Hey there, travelers. I'm Isabella, and this is True Crime International Season 2. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all had a happy, fun, and safe summer. To my new listeners, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. And to my returning listeners, welcome back. And thank you for coming back. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. I'm so excited to be back for season two, but I'm sure you've noticed that there are a couple of absences. So over the summer, both Riley and Angelica decided to part ways with the podcast. There's no need to worry. Both of them are okay and all of our friendships are okay. Everyone and everything is completely fine, but for their own personal reasons, which I won't get into out of respect for their privacy, they have decided to no longer continue. I respect their decision, uh, but I really enjoy making this podcast and I wanted to keep going and they were okay with it. So here I am. I sincerely apologize if either Angelica or Riley were your favorite hosts, but they didn't want to leave without saying goodbye, so they've recorded a little message for all of you. Hi, travelers. It's me, Angelica. I'm here with sort of a bittersweet message. As going forward, you will only be hearing from Isabella as Riley and I will be taking a step back. We started this podcast when the pandemic was really in full swing and we just had a lot of time on our hands and we all really needed a welcome distraction to get us back on track and true crime international allowed us to do just that but as things have gotten sort of back to normal riley and i have really had to reevaluate these days, we are both lucky if we get a six-day work week, and that's not including Riley's crochet business, which she is excelling at, or the fact that I am a full-time student getting her master's. When the summer started, we were really hoping that we could continue with the podcast, but as we became more familiar with our more involved schedules as things became more normal, we realized that we weren't really going to have any time to be there for ourselves and do things that really make us feel good like writing working out reading just having some downtime or just like honestly taking a day to veg out and binge Netflix and just doing the things that really bring you a sense of calm is so important to mental health and I mean I can only speak for myself really but I wasn't doing well and I need to take more time to make sure that I am checking in with myself. But regardless, we want to just extend a huge thank you to all of you for listening and commenting, for complimenting us, and for traveling with us, listening to us talk about true crime or just bantering. Isabella, Riley, and I remain close, and I am so happy that Isabella is continuing this podcast and that you will continue to be able to enjoy her commentary on true crime. While this is probably not the last you'll hear from me, I truly, truly hope that you've enjoyed your stay with us here at True Crime International and that you keep on enjoying the show.
So that being said, before I jump into today's case, I want to give a few announcements so you all understand the changes that are being made to the podcast. Um, For the most part, these main episodes will be exactly the same. I don't really plan on changing much. I received some really positive feedback uh, for my research last season, especially with my culture and history parts. So I want to keep the ball rolling there and keep doing those and keep doing what's working. That being said, though, I am now a solo podcaster. And this is something I'm still trying to get used to. So if you have any suggestions for me, I'm completely open to hearing them. And you can contact me on pretty much any social media or by email with any constructive criticism that you have. My only request, and I know this is a big unrealistic request because this is the internet, uh, just don't be a dick. Seems like a simple request, but it is the internet. I know someone's going to be a dick still. Whatever, it's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I, I still I want to hear from you guys, the listeners, and tell me, just tell me what you think I can improve. Tell me something you didn't think worked or something I could have done better. I am all ears and I'm always so happy to hear those things because I can't improve unless I get feedback. So um, yeah, feel free to talk to me about anything and everything with regards to this podcast. I am, I've got nothing but time for my listeners, honestly. The most significant changes that I've made are actually to the Patreon. So if you're already a patron, you know these um, and you can just skip this part. But to my other listeners, this is the changes that are going on over there. So if that changes your mind about contributing to the Patreon, then you can or you can just continue not either way. It's fine, but you you should still know. So uh, first thing is I changed the levels. So before there was only one level which was for $5, and that got you three extra pieces of content per month. There are now three levels. Um, There is a $3 level, which gets you the extra full-length episode every month. And then uh, I still have the $5 level, and that's going to get you a full-length episode, and then also one layover. And then there's the $7 level, which will get you the full-length episode, two layovers, and the new TCI news episodes. The second thing that I changed is the nature of the layovers. So before we were just covering uh, short cases that didn't have a ton of details for the layovers, but now I'm changing it so that it's more like a casual, like after party sort of thing. And it's where I'm just going to chat and I'll have guests and share travel stories and just talk about life and like the chronicles of living abroad and all, all, all those sorts of things. So it's still going to have an international component, but it's just going to be a lot more relaxed, uh, a bit more personal. I'll definitely try to have guests as frequently as possible over there. So it's not just me essentially doing therapy <laughs> with a microphone to the internet. Um, so yeah, that's the those are the new layovers. And then the third thing is TCI News. And uh, those are actually replacing the red eyes for now. And so every month I'll do one of those and I'll find two or three pieces of true crime news from different continents and share them with you. I may throw in some other pieces of international news that I find is interesting, um, even if they aren't true crime related, but true crime is definitely still most important. I've already done uh, one TCI news and we covered or I covered um, a hate crime in Spain, the assassination of Haiti's president, and a recent murder in Singapore. But that one was interesting because it was less about the actual murder, more about the potential punishment for the accused, which includes 
caning. So dove into the caning part of Singapore's justice system. So it was really interesting stuff and I'll be doing one of those every month. Um, and yeah, those are the changes to the Patreon. Next change is I am, I'm doing this podcast alone now. Um, I do have someone now that's going to help me with the editing. He's actually uh, a friend of mine. I've known him for 10 years and he's a wonderful human being. So everyone say hi to Trent because he's editing this episode. Hi, Trent. Thank you. Um, so we've got, we've got an editor to help. But at the end of the day, I am producing eight pieces of content a month and I am one person and I don't do this as my regular job. So for the sake of my mental health, I am allowing myself three weeks off the main feed uh, throughout this next season because I, I, I have a feeling that it's going to catch up to me and I'm going to need to be able to take a week off either to relax or catch up whatever it is, those three weeks are there for me. I might not use them or I might use only one or two. I might use all of them. I don't know. Um, but I just I just want it to be clear that I I have those three weeks set aside for myself if I need them. Um, this is actually, it's going to be good for you to follow me on social media because if there is going to be a week off, that's where I will announce it. Um, if you don't follow me on social media, if you don't do social media, good on you. That's actually really good for your mental health. Um, You'll know that there's no episode that I decided to take a week off when there's no episode. So there you go. Um, another thing is uh, the main feed. I will no longer be doing layovers on here, just the main episodes, but you'll still get one episode every Monday. Um, the layovers didn't get a lot of love anyway, so I don't feel bad for cutting them. If you enjoyed them, I am sorry, but it was just too much for me. Honestly, the layovers sometimes took me longer to do than the main episodes, so for me, they're, they're better to just cut from, from the main feed. And one more thing before I wrap up announcements and dive into today's case is I have made one more change that I'm actually really excited to implement because it involves you, the audience, the community. If you've listened to this podcast before, then you know that I love diving into the historical and cultural context of whatever case I'm doing. For me, honestly... It's by far the most fun part because international history and culture are the only things that I love learning about more than true crime. But even though I very much have a passion for it, I, I'm not an anthropologist or a historian and I'm very aware that I am just some white girl with a microphone. So the best way to learn about a culture always is from its own participants. So this season, I would like to engage you guys, the community, I will be posting the list of countries that I will be covering on this season on my Facebook group, which is True Crime International. Um, if you belong to any of the cultures or countries on that list, please reach out and I will talk to you and ask you questions, get your insights. And when the episode from your country culture goes up, I will credit you. Uh, shout you out on the show and I will also plug any social media or small business that you want me to within reason of course but by doing this I'm hoping to build a more engaged online community where we can learn about one another and learn about each other's ways of life while also supporting one another um, with regards to the small businesses it can be your small business it can be your friend's Etsy store your neighbor's online whatever like I, I it, it doesn't matter as long as it's something that people can buy or, or support some way with with their money uh, and it's a small business again 
um, I, I'm more than willing to to offer the promotion in exchange for your help and your insights on your own country slash culture. Um, so I really look forward to that. Uh, I look forward to talking to you and and getting your help on on these episodes. Um, I don't have anyone that helped me on today's episode, but I do actually have two people that helped me for next week's episode. So you'll get a sense of what that will look like next week. Um, so if you're interested in helping me and being part of the podcast, please go over to the Facebook group and check the list and message me if you see your country or culture on there um, and want to help because I think it will be really, really cool. Okay. I'm really sorry for all the lengthy announcements, but they're done now. So let's jump into today's case. And oh my God, it's so fascinating. So today we're going further back in time than we have ever on this podcast and probably will ever. No, definitely will ever because today we are venturing all the way back to the Han dynasty of ancient China. And when I say we're going far back, I mean, we're going really far fucking back. The Han Dynasty was established in 202 BC and was the ruling dynasty of China all the way until 220 AD. The Han Dynasty was actually responsible for some of the most important and influential inventions in history, such as paper, the wheelbarrow, suspension bridges, seismographs, adjustable wrenches, stirrups, and serial killers. Yes. Today, we are talking about the first ever recorded serial killer in history, Liu Peng Li. And honestly, if I had to describe the expression on my face to you right now at this moment, I would say that it is inappropriately excited. <laughs> this, stuff, this stuff is just so, so interesting to me. This is the first ever recorded serial killer. Like, are you kidding Oh my goodness. So if any of you are well-versed in ancient Chinese history, then you'll recognize the name Lu because that was actually the ruling family name of the Han Dynasty. And remember, family names go first throughout East Asia. So Lu Pengli was born sometime in the second century BC. But of course, being that far back in history, it's difficult to know for sure. Pengli's father was Lu Wu the prince of Liang, and the brother to Emperor Jing, the sixth emperor of the Han dynasty. And can we take just a second to really let the fact that serial killers far predate Jesus. This is a genuine historical fact. Serial killers are way older than, than Jesus. And they probably go even further back in history than Peng Li. Actually, I'm very certain they go further back in history than Peng Li. He was just the first one to be recorded that we know of. But anyway, the information we have about Peng Li and his life and his story, especially with regards to the murders, is very limited. However, there's some very interesting stuff that leads up to Peng Li's life. And so I want to take a couple minutes to talk about Peng Li's father and uncle. So the emperor. Because honestly, the family drama, this, if this was a movie, I don't think I would believe it. I would, I would say that this was, un, I would say it was unrealistic and probably historically inaccurate. It's insane. So I think the names here get a little bit confusing. So just to reiterate before we get started, our serial killer is Liu Peng Li. His father and also Prince of Liang is Liu Wu. And his father's brother was the emperor, Emperor Jing. All right. Keep your names straight in your brain and you'll be able to understand the story. 
So at the very beginning of the Han Dynasty, when it was first created, the first emperor divided about one third to one half of the land that couldn't be directly ruled by the capital and gave it to various relatives to rule. That way, the family was still directly controlling most of the empire. The Han princes who ruled these territories set their own laws, they had their own capitals, and kept things running, but they still answered to the emperor. Now, during the reign of the fifth emperor, and remember, Peng Li's uncle was the sixth, the princes of these states began to mint their own coins and collect their own taxes that were not then sent to the imperial palace. They were essentially stripping control away from the emperor, and that simply did not fly. By the time Emperor Jing took the throne in 157 BC, there were whispers of a rebellion starting against the crown being led by the more powerful principalities. And that's exactly what happened. Seven principalities banded together and rose up to try and overthrow the emperor. But their efforts proved unsuccessful, and Prince Wu, Emperor Jing's brother slash Peng Li's father, helped his brother to squash the rebellion. Prince Wu was rewarded for his contributions during the rebellion, and Emperor Jing allowed him more power within his kingdom of Liang, which was already one of the most powerful in the empire. This obviously made Wu very happy, and it boosted his confidence when it came to favor with his older brother. So in 148 BC, Emperor Jing was looking to select an heir, because he'd had some drama with his wives and concubines, and he didn't have one. And honestly, like, he was just having some really major baby mama drama. That's why all this was happening. Um, So when it came to selecting an heir, people were starting to put their names in as a bid. And Prince Wu put his name into the running to become the emperor after his brother with support from the family. But while people like the Empress Dowager, i.e. their mother, supported Prince Wu's bid to become emperor, those closer to Emperor Jing didn't, particularly his closest minister, Yuan Ang, because he believed making the emperor's younger brother the heir would destabilize the line of succession within the dynasty and set a dangerous precedent for the future where there would be more violence and rebellions. And I actually really agree with Yuan there, because if you think about it, the line of succession is a pretty fragile thing, you know, and it should always go to the, you know, historically always went to the eldest son, eldest son, eldest son, eldest son, but if there's no eldest son then who does it go to? And it was dangerous with Emperor Jing because he did have sons, but there just wasn't any agreement about who would be the the next emperor. And that is a whole other mess that is honestly too confusing to get into. But what would it mean for the empire if Emperor Jing's brother took the throne? What What would that say to the other principalities who had already led a rebellion against their own family member to try and take power to, to to gain more power you know what i mean like it would just it would set such a dangerous precedent because what would stop the prince the principalities from rising up again to try and take power again because if the line of succession can be so easily de- destabilized by baby mama drama then what else could they possibly de- destabilize do you know what i mean though valid points were made this royally pissed off prince wu and it turned yuan ang into an enemy and things got far far worse when Prince Wu tried to have a road built from Liang to the capital, only for Yuan Ang to shut it down because he was afraid it would be too easy to get to the capital should Liang rebel. And this was the final straw for Prince Wu. 
and he had two of his most trusted servants go to Yuan Ang's house, where they stabbed him to death in the courtyard. And also, while they were in town, the assassins murdered another nine people. Who they murdered and why, I have absolutely no idea. I don't understand it. Did they see something? Were they just amped up after murdering an old man in his courtyard? I don't know. But it's really, really weird. So in total, they murdered 10 people in the span of a couple of days. And at this point, the emperor is just like, what the fuck? Who killed my most trusted advisor? And he launched a full-scale investigation into Yuan's death. But it was pretty obvious to everyone who was behind the attack, given the recent events. So Prince Wu, in his infinite wisdom, got scared when the emperor learned that he and his assassins were behind the attack, and he ordered the assassins to kill themselves so they wouldn't give the game away. And they did. They did. They, they, they He told them to kill themselves, and they listened. They did it. I don't... I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I truly cannot imagine. So Prince Wu then took their bodies to the palace where he showed them to his brother in a last-ditch effort to essentially save his own ass. But the damage was done. Fearful of what would happen to her younger son, the Empress Dowager told Emperor Jing that she would starve herself to death unless he cleared his brother of all charges and let him go, as the Emperor was both judge and jury during this time. Ultimately, Emperor Jing decided that the blame for the murders should fall on the men who actually did the killing, and seeing as they were already dead, no action was taken by the court at all, and Prince Wu walked free. In the end, one of Emperor Jing's sons from one of his concubines was named the heir, and Prince Wu went back to his kingdom where he died a few years later around the age of 40. You can actually visit his tomb in Henan province, China today, and it's actually also at the site where you can find the oldest known Chinese mural uh, called the Mural of the Four Gods, and it dates back to 5300 BC. That is not important to the story whatsoever. I just think it's really cool and I wanted to talk about it. Anyway, I am three pages into this script and we haven't even started talking about our serial killer. So let's get into it. After Prince Wu's death in 144 BC, the kingdom of Liang was divided up as well as his fortune, which would be around $30 billion today. That's so insane. That is send yourself to space kind of wealth, if I'm being honest. That is some Bezos bullshit. Anyway, the land and wealth were divided among his five sons, and the third of which was Peng Li. All that craziness I just walked you through was what Peng Li grew up in, so he clearly did not have the happiest, most stable family around. What royal does, if I'm being honest? But from what we know of his life growing up, he didn't seem to be violent at all, though he could definitely have been very subtle about it. Or, I mean, these things could just not have been talked about or thought anything of because this was a very different time. But remember, this whole story predates Jesus, so certain serial killer behaviors like killing animals as a kid would have gone completely unnoticed by those around him. So we really have no idea what his early life would have looked like that could have led him to what he did. However, he did have a reputation for what I can only best describe as being an arrogant little shit. He was definitely entitled by his family's powerful position and used it to put others down and get what he wanted. And things took a turn for the absolute worst 
when he was given real power. When Prince Wu's kingdom was divided amongst his sons, Peng Li took charge of an area known as Zhidong, and the poor souls who called Zhidong their home lived in almost constant fear of their leader for nearly 30 years. Unfortunately, a lot of the details surrounding Peng Li's crimes have been lost to history. Honestly, it's amazing that we know anything about him at all considering how far back the story goes, but here's what we do know. Sometime after he was given control of Zhidong, Peng Li put together a band of around 20 to 30 followers who listened to Peng Li like those assassins listened to his father. How he got 20 to 30 people to follow him on his killing sprees, I don't know, but my best guess would be it's because he was so rich and powerful. I've seen it reported in some places that they were slaves and people hiding from the law, but I've seen other people say that it was a group of people that were just as sadistic and bloodthirsty as Pangli himself, but I think I believe the former more than the latter because of his socio-political position. Also, were there 20 to 30 sadistic fucks in his kingdom at this time? And if so, how would he have been able to find them? You know, it's not like he could just put an ad on Craigslist. Like, they, they definitely had to have been forced to be there. There's no other way. It wouldn't make any sense to me otherwise. Whenever Peng Li got the urge, he would assemble his followers and they would go out at night into nearby villages, hunting for potential victims. Once he found his victim, he would rob them and murder them with whatever help he wanted from his followers. Or, I guess, slaves would probably be a better word. I don't know how exactly he killed his victims, that part is unclear, but what is clear is that killing people was a sport for Peng Li. Now, of course, all nobles of this time period across the world were killers. All of them, in some way or another, killed a lot of people, whether it be through war, ordering executions, ordering assassinations, or fighting in wars. But Peng Li was different. He was not carrying out justice or trying to gain more political power or protecting his people from invaders. He was killing for the sheer thrill of it. And he treated it like a sport, like how going out and hunting boars was a big thing for nobles to do in medieval Europe. However, I did see someone on Reddit talk about how Han nobles would gather together to compete in play fighting, quote unquote, to show off their skills as swordsmen. But when that got too boring, they came up with this quote-unquote game where they would put black balls and red balls into a bag with like a 7 to 3 ratio, and they'd each have to take a ball. If the ball that they grabbed was black, they would have to slay a commoner with a sword, and if it was red, they would have to fight what was basically the equivalent of a knight. And that's fucked up. That's so fucked up. I don't know if it's true, but historically does not seem outlandish to me. But it still is not as fucked up as what Peng Li did, in my personal opinion. And think about it. He really did not need to rob anybody of anything. He was already the richest man in the kingdom. He was one of the richest men in the empire. He was given one-fifth of a $30 billion fortune and real administrative power. So I believe he did it not because he needed the money, he clearly didn't, but because it was a power play for him. 
he probably really got off on taking people's shit because to him it felt like he was proving that he owned everything and everyone in his kingdom. It was all his and no one else's. And we already know that he was an arrogant asshole, so for me, that's the only thing that could possibly fit. However, if you have other ideas, talk to me about it because I would be curious to know what you think. At the beginning, the people of Jidong really didn't know who it was that was going around the kingdom and murdering people. This far back in history, most people probably wouldn't have even known what their monarch looked like, so Peng Li wouldn't have been easily identifiable, at least by his face. However, as the bodies kept piling and piling over the years, the commoners of the kingdom started to catch on, and rumors spread that it was their own prince who was murdering them. I don't know how the rumors started. Maybe he wore distinct clothing that only nobles would wear out on these hunts, and someone saw him. Maybe someone already knew what the prince looked like and then saw him in their town where someone was then murdered. Maybe both. Maybe it was something else. I don't know. But those are my best guesses. But either way, it, d- it doesn't matter because these rumors spread and people around the kingdom became panicked. I, I mean, if their prince, the person meant to protect them, was the one senselessly murdering them, how could they ever truly feel safe? You can't in that circumstance. So people began boarding up their houses at night in order to hopefully keep their prince out of their homes and keep themselves and their families alive. As years turned into decades, the murders never stopped, they never faltered, and what was once a rumour about the Prince of Jidong killing his people became common knowledge within the kingdom. The people of Jidong were forced to live in a nightmare for years, because what could they possibly do to stop their prince without getting more of them killed? They had no choice but to live in fear and wonder if they were going to be the next victim. And I really... I try to put myself in in their shoes, and it's hard because it's so far back, It's you can't really relate, but they couldn't have just moved somewhere else, at least most of them. Commoners back then didn't have the same agency as commoners do now. And I mean, even think about us commoners now. It's hard to just move far away. There are so many things that go into it. It's expensive, it's difficult. And imagine back then with very little technology and, you know, it just it just wouldn't have been feasible for most people to move. So they were just stuck and just had to simply hope that their prince wasn't going to break into their house, steal all their shit and murder them. I really cannot imagine how terrifying that must have been. And because of that level of fear, they couldn't report it to other principalities or even to the emperor. That is, until one brave soul stepped up. The son of one of Pengli's victims was a rare commoner who could read and write, and he had enough balls to draft a letter and send it to the emperor, detailing his cousin's crimes in either 116 or 115 BC, in Pengli's 29th year of his reign. Luckily for the people of Zhidong, Emperor Wu took the allegation seriously and immediately launched an investigation into his cousin's conduct. The emperor's detectives were able to confirm no fewer than 100 people who had died at the hands of the prince by unjust means. The people of the emperor's court were absolutely furious and they requested that the emperor have Pengli executed for his crimes. 
For an ancient civilization, this punishment seems to be pretty on brand, pretty on point, but the emperor was having none of it. It was said that he felt guilty at the prospect of ordering his own cousin's execution, and so, in an act of what he saw as mercy, he let him go. However, Peng Li was stripped of all titles and nobility and was sent to live in Shangyong as a commoner. Now, obviously, this is not a heavy enough punishment by any means. He murdered at least 100 people. Like, they could, they could only confirm 100, but he was active for nearly 30 years. He, I, I think it's at least double. Like, to me, it has to be. So, to me, this sounds like the emperor just thought that if he sent the problem to a place outside of his jurisdiction, then it's no longer his problem. Like, if I can't see it, it's not there, it's not happening. And obviously, Peng Li could have just started killing again because he's essentially being given a fresh start in a place where no one knows him whatsoever. Uh, he could take on any identity, no one knows his face. So he had total anonymity, he could just start killing again. But I can't help but feel some satisfaction in knowing that this arrogant, entitled piece of shit was made to live as a commoner. Life for commoners back then was rough, and I do feel some degree of retribution knowing how much he must have hated that. But at the same time, I don't know if he was given any money or not. I I don't know. If he had to live as a destitute commoner, again, not a harsh enough punishment, but that is something I'd like to see. So after his banishment, we have no idea what happened to him. No one kept a record of it. He could have died immediately. Maybe he lived to be 100, which would have been very rare back then. No idea whatsoever. Peng Li's story was actually almost entirely swept under the rug by Emperor Wu, who didn't want to go down in history as the emperor who let his cousin get away with murdering over a 100 of his own subjects. The only reason we know the story is because of the work of the historian Sima Qian who was a contemporary of Peng Li and wrote Peng Li's story down as part of an official Han dynasty history, as he was part of the court. Without the one paragraph he wrote about Peng Li, this story would have been completely lost to history. We would have no idea about it whatsoever. So we need to give major props to Sima Qian because he probably risked quite a bit by adding it in because Emperor Wu did not want people to know about it. So major props to Sima Qian, that was brave and thank you because it's a fascinating story. But it's not where our story ends today. Because after Peng Li was banished and stripped of all titles, lands and assets, it was all dissolved and brought under the control of the Han government and, by association, the emperor. So this begs the question, is it possible that Peng Li could have been framed? Emperor Wu and his father had both tried to strip power away from the kingdoms while also conquering more land, giving themselves more power. Emperor Wu was also a very paranoid person and actually launched a full-scale witch hunt in the later years of his rule because of some dreams he had about puppets whipping him. So I think there's certainly grounds for a decent argument in favor of Peng Li being framed, because there is a lot of evidence of Emperor Wu's paranoia and also his desire to gain more power. But it doesn't quite add up for me, because at least 100 people were killed by somebody. That wasn't faked. 
And all of this was happening over years, 29 years. That That's a lot, you know? So if it was a frame job, I don't think they would have been so patient about it. The only way this could work for me is if it really was some other unknown serial killer, but the rumors were still strongly in favor of it being the prince. If that were the case, Emperor Wu would have all the grounds he needed to get rid of his cousin and take his land and assets. It's not the craziest thing we've heard today, but I still think that it's far more likely that Peng Li was actually the killer because what commoner would be able to pull off something like that, you know? What do you think? I would love to hear your opinions about this. Was Peng Li framed, or was he actually the murderer? I don't know. If you have an opinion, you can tell me on the social medias. It is at TrueCrimeINTL on Instagram, and we also have, uh, I also have a Facebook group, which is just True Crime International. I talked about that at the beginning. Um, come over to the Patreon and check out all the awesome new changes. Um, I actually have already had a guest on my first new layover. Um, it was a very special guest, so you can come and listen to them because it was awesome. Uh, and also if you really like the podcast, I would love and appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. It really helps to boost the show and I'm doing this alone now, so a boost would be much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening, for coming back. I hope you enjoyed this solo episode. Again, I am open to any and all constructive criticism. I actually really appreciate it, and I appreciate all of you for listening. I will be back next week for a really wild case. Until then, I hope you learned something new, and I hope you enjoyed your stay at True Crime International. Bye!